That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Hey friends, welcome back to the New Evangelicals podcast. My name is Noah, I'm the podcast producer, and I've got another really great episode to share with you this week. This is a conversation between Tim and Adam Clark. Adam Clark is an associate professor of theology at Xavier University, and he personally studied under theologian James Cone, which, if you're a theology nerd like me, is really, really awesome. Adam goes into James Cone's theological legacy in this episode, Martin Luther King Jr., and the history of black liberation theology. And Tim and Adam also share a really great conversation about what it means to push the church forward into more honest dialogue about racial justice and what it means for us to pursue that as followers of Jesus today. Yeah, I've said it before, I'm saying it again, but there's there's so much here. I'm learning so much. I hope you are too. If this adds value to you week to week, if the New Evangelicals is is doing work that has meaning to you in your life, a really easy way that you can support us is to just leave a review of this podcast in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. It pushes us in the algorithms. It allows more people to hear these amazing conversations that are being made. And you can also support us financially. There's a link below in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. That's all I have for you this week. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I know I really did. And I'll talk to you next week. Well, um, Adam, it is truly an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I guess once again, I have to thank Trip Fuller for connecting me. He's the source of so many of, of the guests that we get now. Um, I've come to know Trip um, through this circle that I'm in, and I consider him now a friend, and he's a great guy. So thank you, Trip, for connecting us, and Adam, thanks for being here. Great. Well, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. Well, before we get rolling into some of the, the stuff that I really want to talk about, you know, we, we're really big about um, story. Like, like who is Adam Clark? What, what do you do right now? How did you get into that field, et cetera? So why don't you kind of give us some of the backstory? Well, you know, I'm currently teaching at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the Department of Theology. And um, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, okay. upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I actually... You know, um, an undergrad wanted a career in philosophy, but my mentors kind of pushed me into theology because they thought they were more. I also had an interest in just black materials, African-American experience. So they said Mm. there's more of that under the category of religion in theology than there is in philosophy, especially at that time. So I was pushed into uh, well, I was encouraged, I say not pushed, but encouraged to go into to religion. I went to Colgate Rochester Divinity School, which is actually um, the divinity school that Martin Luther King went to and Howard wow. Thurman went to as well. And then from there, I went to study with James Cone at Union Theological Seminary and um, did my training under him. And I've been at Xavier, actually, even before I graduated, I, w- I was actually, um, you know, I actually got hired before I I got my dissertation, which I do not advise. It was very difficult, Uh, but yeah, so I've been I've been here um, at Xavier University um, ever since I, I, I left Union Theological Seminary. Wow. And and how did you grow up? I mean, you're I, I live in New Jersey, so not super far from Syracuse, oh, New yeah, York. I'm yeah, on the East yeah. Coast. Did, did, okay. did you grow up like in, in evangelical spaces? I mean, were you always a committed Christian? How what what does that look like? Yeah, well well, first of all, since you mentioned New Jersey, I was actually born in Newark, New Jersey. All right. <laughs> and my family um is from my father's from outside of Trenton, a small town called Pennington, New Jersey. I know Pennington. I grew up uh, twenty minutes oh, really? outside of Pennington. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow, that yeah. is that that is like so crazy to me because yeah. that's such a small like traffic light town. Yes, <laughs> that's why you say Trenton. It's right. outside of Trenton. <laughs> well, I, I grew up in a small town called New Egypt, and I tell people I grew up on oh. Great Adventure by Six Flags. Oh, so that's okay. my marker. <laughs> got you. Got you. Okay. Well, yeah, my parents came from New Jersey, and we, we uh, 
when I was an infant moved to um, Syracuse, New York. But I actually grew up, no, I did not grow up evangelical. Um, most people don't know, I actually grew up Episcopalian. All right, all right. <laughs> but here's the thing, I had a brush with evangelicalism because what was happening is I grew up during the time when, when all the evangelical ministries started coming on TV. Mm. And I was always this kind of question, I had this religious longing and the evangelical, excuse me, the, the Episcopal Church confirmation didn't do it for me. Mm. Um, the, the Sunday school didn't do it for me. Mm. So when I saw all these evangelical ministries having fun with church, having contemporary worship formats, and it just looked like a good time, mm. I briefly entered into evangelical Christianity because it spoke to not just my head, but my heart and my body in a different way. Mm. And I was compelled and convicted by, you know, some some friends who were deeply involved in evangelicalism. Uh, but what ended up happening is that my understanding of Christianity was what I would refer to as religion by the don'ts, like don't cuss, don't drink, uh, don't have sex before marriage. So I didn't know what to affirm. So I felt like it was a straitjacket, mm, right? Mm. Like I felt like I didn't know how to walk this out because it was a it, it told me what I have to restrict, not what I have to affirm, right? So it wasn't until I, I got introduced to the liberationist paradigm, I was like, okay, here's something I can affirm. I don't have to be restrictive, mm. right? Uh, okay. So that, that, was a, that was a paradigm shift for me um, from evangelicalism. Wow. Okay. Um, very fascinating. Um, so like we said before we started recording, you know, I think a lot of the audience is kind of like me in the sense of, as we've maybe been thinking about how you put it, that that the circles I grew up in for my entire life were more restrictive than affirming, right? Um, and that this has been documented even by like the Barna group, that, that most people know what evangelicals are against, not what they're for. So this isn't just, you know, a perspective. It is a reality. Um, it is, so as we've been coming out of that, a lot of us are hearing new words for the first time, right? Liberation theology, um, anti-racist, um, you know, black theology, black liberation theology, all this stuff. And you mentioned that 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 you came into contact with liberationist theology. Is that is that is that what you said? Yes. Uh, uh, so yes. what what is that? What is liberationist theology? Well, liberation theology came out of the the the, the paradigm actually emerged from the 1960s. Um, what it posited is that freedom or liberation is the central teaching of biblical faith, right? So that therefore love is expressed historically through the desire to be free. If you love something, you want it to be free. So it was came out of the movement of subjugated and oppressed people, right? Mostly black, the black community in the United States the Latin American community in Latin America with Gustavo Gutierrez and that type of thing, mm. where he, he, you know, so you had a Catholic dimension to it and you had the Protestant. So James Cone led the Protestant dimension through talking about black liberation theology. Mm. Then you actually have Gustavo Gutierrez, who actually they didn't have a relationship at the time. They were kind of parallel developments that were happening at a similar time through Catholic teachings started to talk about a liberationist paradigm within a Catholic framework. Um, and what it, what it shifts though, it, it, it's, it's not just a theme in theology, it actually shifts the paradigm for doing theology. So that therefore in evangelical theology, you have this type of uh, faith versus a non-believer. So the, 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 the impulse is to convert. Within the liberationist paradigm, it's faith versus the non-person, right? The, per the person who has been dehumanized and made less. So that faith is an address to people who have been dehumanized in one way or another, right? So that the idea of sinfulness, right? Is seen, is seen up through, the, through imposed social suffering, social misery, right? That mm. sin, you've been a sinned against right mm. the sin people have been sinned against through race through economic violence through gender violence that type through ecological right that type of thing so that the whole 
interpretive scheme of Christian the of Christian faith is being refracted through that lens, right? So theology is really this type of conversation between faith and human experience. Okay, so depending on how you understand human experience says a lot about how you interpret Christian faith, mm. right? Mm. So that you you we interpret we're interpreting Christian faith from a certain standpoint, right? 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 So and this you know sharply contrasts a lot with evangelicals because they say you know the evangelical idea is that God said it. I believe it, that settles it, right? Totally. As if there's no human process that goes in. Well, you know, but when you go to, when you become trained, you realize that that's an interpretation, mm-hmm. right? That's making certain privileges. That's actually choosing what's authoritative in the biblical text, right? right. So there's a, there's a human process that's always involved in our understanding of Christian faith. But liberationists make that explicit and say, here's my human predicament that I'm coming from. So that instead of starting with the universal and going from the particular, it starts with the particularity of human experience mm. and then speaks to the universal. Okay. Um, I can see why you're a professor and why you teach this. <laughs> and I, I love all, everything you just said. I, I, I want to make a couple of clarifications for the audience with you kind of clarifying. So uh, you know, us again, growing up in evangelical circles, I've heard a lot about freedom. You know, I've sang songs about freedom, but I have mm-hmm. a feeling it doesn't mean the same thing that maybe mm-hmm. someone who holds a liberation theology perspective would agree with. Because the the freedom I've been taught is, is like a spiritual, almost a mental freedom, right? Like I have freedom in Christ that doesn't really mm-hmm. affect my sociological status, because that would be Marxism or socialism. We can't talk about that. But as far as my actual spiritual individualism, that part is free. I, I don't think that's what liberation theology is talking about, but I want to make sure is, is that, are these the same things or very different? No, no. Well, well you have to go to Moses. Right? Okay. All right. And the Exodus paradigm, mm. the, 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 the Exodus paradigm is the point of departure from almost all liberation theologies. Okay. Why? Because when Moses talked about let my people go in freedom, it's clear that it was a material and historical freedom that he's struggling for, yeah. right? Like think of Moses, What think of Moses if you said he just had to love his neighbor. Mm. Think of Moses if you had to say he had to be nonviolent, right? How would that change Exodus if Moses actually had to be nonviolent and had to use the love thy neighbor and love the enemy ethic, right? Mm. Yeah. So that's why black people have been more favorable to the Hebrew Bible Right. Historically, mm. especially 19th century, mm. emerged, they use they use Hebrew scriptures because they identify with enslaved people struggling to be free. They saw a they saw a parallel between the enslavement of Hebrews and their contemporary enslavement mm. and said, if God can do it for the Hebrews, God could do it for us. Mm. Right. So that that's where the liberation motif comes from. And they interpret Jesus through that lens that Jesus is an extension of this type of mosaic drive toward freedom, this prophetic. Moses is the first prophet, right? Like you have a you have the prophetic tradition through Moses, you have the priestly tradition through Aaron, mm-hmm. right? So it takes the prophetic tradition, prophetic Christianity, right? And they understand Jesus through the lens of prophetic Christianity. Mm. Okay, that's helpful. So let's get to James Cone. So like we said again before we started recording, I was saying how I am now 33 years old. I grew up, I have all the badges to prove my evangelicalism, right? As Paul would say, right? I I, I can prove it to anyone that I was the golden child, um, did everything correct, was, was aware of all the major the, the, uh, theologies and theologians, so I thought. And then recently, maybe the past like year or two, I hear more and more about, about Black Liberation Theology and James Cone, who I believe is the father, or he's known as the father of black liberation theology. So this year I went through, well, this year, you know, late 2021, 2022, I went through um, the cross and lynching tree and went through black power and black theology. Um, And I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, I, I am angry that I was never, ever, ever, ever introduced to this. However, I understand why, because it completely blows away the paradigms that I've been taught are are the only way to see these things. So for the listeners out there, would you mind kind of giving us just a brief kind of overview of James Cone and, and Black Liberation Theology compared to Liberation Theology, if there is a difference? Yeah, um, well, 
black theology or black liberation theology mm. is the first liberation theology in Amer- on American soil. Okay. Right. Um, so let me let me talk more just about James Cone in terms of the the, the emergence. Um, James Cone was trained in theology. I think he got out around 1967. Mm. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot dead, assassinated in 1968. Mm-hmm. After King was shot dead, hundreds of cities from around the country, there were uprisings, right? And all this type of chaos was happening in cities. The Christian church had responded in the way, the side of law and order, mm-hmm. right? So all these Christian churches are sitting there and identifying with the police and the establishment against the protesters. Cone is sitting there saying, what the hell does this Christian theology I just was trained in have to do with my people who are suffering and dying in the streets right now? Mm. Right? So he's frustrated because, especially at that time, American theology was just a footnote to the Germans. Right. They didn't even study American theologians. They studied mostly German theologians. They were had this kind of, you know, Anglophile, uh, Europe, Europhile type of idea about what theology actually was. It didn't really even study American American history. And even at Union, you know, the 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 prominent theologians were Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr. Right. Yes. Yes. So so. Code is sitting there and trying to find resources that he could actually have theology to speak to the type of racial suffering that he's feeling so immediately. So he takes, he looks at the discipline, he tries to draw from different sources. So he draws from Malcolm X, who had been killed in 1965, assassinated in 1965. And for him, Malcolm X and the subsequent Black Power movement that was spawned after he died gave him the idea of being black. Now, before Malcolm X, black people referred to themselves as Negro, right? Mm -hmm. So Malcolm made being black acceptable. And it wasn't just a semantic change, it was a way of conceiving of your identity. Mm -hmm. The Negro identity was a a person who was deferential to whiteness. Black was was seen as a way of self-assertion and self-determination. Right. Mm-hmm. So he knew what it must to be a Negro Christian, but he didn't know what it means to be a black Christian. So Cone mm-hmm. wanted to define what does it mean to be a black Christian, not just a Negro Christian. Mm-hmm. Right. So blackness became the first thing. And then the idea of what does it mean to be black? And the second question was, what does it mean to be Christian? Now, at the time, he's looking at at King and the biggest minister. You, you got your you and the audience will know this at the time, especially during the South was Billy Graham, right? <laughs> yes, of course. So Billy Graham crusades were going around so that the idea of being a Christian minister wasn't about protesting unjust laws. Right. It was about converting the heart of people to Christ. Right. 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 So they looked at King in a way they were like, you're, you're, you're a fake minister. You don't mm. have a real church. And every time that I see you, you're getting arrested. How could you be a minister if you're really getting arrested every time you go to another city and you're mm. encouraging other people to do it? Mm. Right? So it's a new paradigm for understanding Christian faith that the struggle against evil isn't an internal struggle, it's an external struggle, mm. right? The conditions on, as, as they say in the Lord's Prayer, the conditions on earth have to be reflective of the conditions in heaven, right? right? right. And King's idea of beloved community, that's what that was. So that he looked at what it means to be black through Malcolm and what it means to be Christian through the social justice paradigm of Martin Luther King, right? So he's trying to weave the legacy of Malcolm and weave the legacy of Martin together to form this creative theology, which we now refer to as black theology. Okay, right? that's really helpful. Yeah, I, I, when I listened to the audiobook of um, uh, Black Power and Black Theology, uh, Cornell West did like the intro, and I guess it was like a slightly updated version. Man, I mean, honestly, I'm listening to it just 
it was just for my context, just so new. I never heard people talk about things this way. I'm like, wow, it's it's just so much for, for me who, like you said, grew up in the Billy Graham ideology, right? Of like convert the heart. That way no one burns in hell forever. That's the most important yeah. thing. Um, yeah. One thing that, that that struck me as interesting, and and I know that you had the chance to to really study under James Cone, which is, I'm, I'm sure for you, such a um, a special moment to be able to say that, you know. In the book, um, he talks a little bit about violence, right? And like redemptive violence. And, and I was, I'm still trying to wrestle through some of this. And I would love your insight here because, you know, as me, as a Christ follower, I think about, you know, of course, the classic Jesus, love your enemies kind of thing, but also the way that, that James Cone in the book described, you know, the, the plight of the black American, right? Especially in his own context. I'm like, well, what, what what do you do, right? What do you do when the empire has no problem using violence? Like, how do you resist, right? So, can you maybe unpack that for us? Like, how is violence used in in in, in this context, um, either as a good thing or or something that that should be avoided? Because I know that MLK was very strongly against you know using violence, but it seems like James in the book had like a different perspective on it. Yeah. Now, now, what text are you just talking? Are, are you referring to? I'm pretty sure that? in Black Power of Black Theology, he talks about okay. this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah that, yeah. that was his earlier work. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, here's the thing. At the time, Black Theology of Black Power. That's his first book. All right. So at the time, as I mentioned, he's he's looking at he's struggling against the the reality of death. Right. The death of Malcolm. Right. The death of Martin. Right. and the death of the Negro and the rebirth of blackness. Right. That book is not written to the church. Mm. That book is written to the movement. Mm. And what he's trying to say in that book is that what you're doing in the streets, that's God's work, mm. right? God's work is not sitting there in churches and praying while, people, while, while injustice is being done. God's work is actually sitting there trying to change the world. They're trying to push back evil. That's more what, according to the historical Jesus did. Jesus wasn't sitting there in the synagogue, just sitting there praying. Jesus was out in the street with the peasants, with the masses, right? Yeah. So he's trying to draw parallels between them. So at the time, right, where you see all of this chaos and uprising, the way to quell that or to domesticate that is to have this universal nonviolence as a straitjacket. Mm. What he's saying there is not that violence is preferable, right? right? But that if there is going to be violence, that the critique should be against the major perpetrators of violence mm. and not the people who are responsive to it, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes that's, sense, yeah. That's what's happening. So it, it was by any means necessary and that black people ought to have a, I mean, the, the, the critique against King and others is that the weight of nonviolence, that black people should be allowed to express their full human selves, right? Like in, in a sense that we don't say that George Washington should be nonviolent against mm. the British. Mm. Evangelicals who supported Trump don't even say Trump should be nonviolent. Yeah. Right. Totally. It's only when it comes to black and marginalized people that this issue comes up. Right. right. And it's, it seems to be a very self-serving issue to even have that as a as a center of white anxiety, because you don't do that with yourselves. Well, right? that's exactly right. And, and, and as I'm listening to him talk in the book, right, uh, you know, I'm thinking, Wow, is is even my own perspective of nonviolent really a form of my own white privilege, <laughs> right? Because because I tend to benefit from the empire's violence, right? And I don't see, like you said, I don't see George Washington's violence the same way as I see the violence of maybe um, you know a protest that becomes violent, right? I see them as different things. One is a law, a matter of law and order, and the other one is a matter of freedom. So even that for me was was, was really a gut check of like even how I've been indoctrinated to see violence. Is is Absolutely. is is messing me up as I'm listening to James Cone, you know, talk about this in the book. It just was complete mind mind twist. And, and to even go one further, yeah. Billy Graham, who met with every president, never insisted on them becoming nonviolent. Mm. Right? Mm. You, most of the people in your audience, depending on their age group, <laughs> who who follow Billy Graham, right? Yeah. He never. He was with Nixon. 
he was with every Republican and mostly and also Democratic presidents, but he didn't sit there and that wasn't at the top of his agendas, be a nonviolent nation, right? He supported them even in the context of war. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does. One thing that messes me up about the Exodus story is that, you know, God ends up drowning the emperor. <laughs> like he ends up drowning Pharaoh. Right. I mean, there's a violent mm-hmm. act that happens in, in the story from the divine, you know, that, that ends up killing a lot of people who were oppressing another people group. Right. And and so it, it is interesting because it's it's made me have to think more critically about even how I view violence, um, uh, and, and, you know, I, and again, I don't have the answers to this. I'm just, this is me just really processing in the moment with, with you, but like, is, can violence ever be, um, be, um, used as a tool due to what's happening to a people group, right? Because I think, and I, I can be blurry on this, so please correct me, but I think James makes the distinction of like an empire using violence to oppress is not the same as an oppressed people using violence to free themselves from, from being, you know, um, having the boot of the neck on them, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's, you know, even within the black power movement, it was, it was, the question wasn't about violence versus nonviolence. It was about violence versus self-defense. Mm. It was like, do you have the right to defend yourself with lethal force? And for those people who struggle with this, the Catholic Church has a just war theory, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, meaning, in just war, for people who may not be familiar, is that there are that in most cases Christians should be nonviolent, but there are times when lethal force is permissible, especially when you're defending innocent life, Mm. right? And they have different criteria. I mean, actually started with Augustine, but they have different criteria about proportionality, last resort, proper authority. There's a whole checklist of things that have to be checked before you do just war theory. Mm. But the Christian tradition has, has historically, since at least the fourth century, said there are times when lethal force is permissible to defend innocent life, Mm. right? So there hasn't been this whole thing about, I mean, you know, it's more amazing to me that in light of black historical circumstances, there hasn't been a black Al-Qaeda rather than black self-defense, right? You Mm. don't see black people organizing and going into suburban suburban communities and shooting up white people and trying to take that kind of thing. Right. Which you see in other parts of the world, right? You see actually offensive violence right. on the offense. When I say not offensive, offense. Right, right. right. right? But right. for Black people, the conversation has been about, can we, if police come and shoot us, is it permissible for us to shoot back? That's been the conversation, right? It's, yeah. it's a defensive posture, not an aggressive posture. I mean, we can think about January 6th. Right. We can think yeah, about, about the violence of, of, of how white America felt, that they were totally justified in what they did. And it's still by many people in these circles really minimized. Right. Even today. Oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but, you know, if um, if if a building gets whatever, you know, if a building gets a chair thrown through it, all of a sudden the entire protest was violent and full of, you know, um, a violent mob. So we, we see this all the time. One question I wanted to ask you, I'm not sure if you know much about this. I'm, I'm sure you do. But is, you know, I was always taught regarding like the Black Panther for example, you know, that like that, 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 well, there's your, I was taught, you know, your aggressive, your offensive group uh, that, that was trying to do harm to people. But I'm, I'm guessing that even that came out of a form of, of, of being able to be defended correctly. Is that kind of where that came from as well? Yeah. The, the whole, the, 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 the whole, the name, it was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, right. And, and, and it started in California about police shootings of black men, mm. right? So what happened was that there are so many black men being shot by police that they had a community patrol that they called themselves the Panthers, and they would come with rifles. And at the time, you had to point your rifles to the ground, right? You couldn't point it at people, but you had to point, and you had to be like a certain distance between yourself and police or whoever you're confronting. And that was legal in the law, right? So. It was intimidating for white police officers to see groups of black men actually put, you know, following police patrol cars. And then when they they came out and said, hey, put your guns down, they would say, uh, ordinance 545, we have the right to blah, 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 blah. And they would like spit out the law, the ordinance and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting for people who maybe, you know, want to look this up is that 
the NRA never defended the Black Panther Party, mm. right? Mm. They, all those gun advocates, they never defended Black men with guns. Mm. But boy, when someone tries to talk about sensible gun regulation, they go crazy. Yeah. But when it was, but but black people start, but black men start talking about gun control or gun holding or starting rifle clubs, the NRA had no part of it. Mm. How was James Cone? Um, how did his theology evolve over time? You know, because I, I know that that, that, you, that you, we both mentioned that that his first book was his first book. You know, um, uh, Black Power and Black Theology. How did his views change over time as he as he developed these things more and more? Um, I don't know if his views, his language changed. Okay. Um, probably at the time he used more of a kind of movement language in his early things, and then in his early writings, I should say, because he was speaking to the um, the Black Power movement, Black Power advocates. He actually was not like deeply in the academy, and he didn't give a damn about the academy when he was writing his first two books. Mm. Uh, they're totally, you know, actually his first two books. If you look at the first printing, they weren't even characterized as theology. They were mm. characterized as sociology, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Because theology was Tillich and Niebuhr. It wasn't James Cone, right? So, right. so even to see it as theology was like an effort and an act. People had to like train their eyes to see it, hear it that way. Um, but as he he started to. Um, use more i mean even if those books are radical they didn't use a lot of black sources mm. it wasn't until 1972 when he wrote the spirit spirituals and the blues they started to use a lot of african-american sources to do theology mm. so he evolved both in terms of the critique it was gender it was gender exclusive it was it didn't really talk about sexuality or the environment so i think being at union for for almost five decades you know, and having, you know, brilliant students critique his work and challenge him, he grew from other people's his critics, right? Mm. And that's what you should do in academy that that theology is a living tradition. It's a living, evolving tradition. And human beings do theology, God doesn't just drop theology down, human beings right. do theology. So he's in a radically pluralistic community with very, very smart people who are all critiquing him. And mm. instead of sitting there rejecting and saying, no, I'm the great James Cone, mm. he would just say, you know what? I see your point. Mm. I will include that next time. So he was a very, you know, intellectually honest person because most of the later editions of his work, he'll talk about the limitations of his previous vision. You'll write yes. that in the book and you'll say, look, at the time I couldn't see, for example, what most people point out, this is, you know, I wrote my first book before the feminist movement was emerge right so i couldn't see that so i i had all male examples and i didn't use gender inclusive language and that type of thing and he'll be very clear about that yeah well he says that and because the book i have is a you know newer edition and there's like a preface from james cohen where he says all of that in that book and he says i didn't change it so you can see where i was at the time acknowledging mm -hmm. that i can do better going forward something like that and i'm sitting there i'm like I, I mean, I, I, have, I don't even know who this guy is yet, but I, I'm, I, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm so humbled by his own approach that this is someone who is obviously, you know, um, legendary for what he, the work that he has pioneered, who's still willing and humble enough to say, you know what, I, I didn't have the full picture then. Um, I might not still have it now, but I'm willing to admit that I could do better going forward, which to me was just like, wow, I, I just, I love them all the more for that. My wife was like, I like this guy listening to the audiobook, you know? So it says, on, I'm looking at, at, at your page on, on the web website um you know of xavier university it says that you are the co-chair of black of, of black theology group at the american academy of religion what is that i'm, I'm curious oh first i gotta update that page that you, <laughs> you mentioned that they've been trying to push me to do that um <laughs> yeah um i've currently stepped down uh or well, rotated off i should say not stepped down but rotated off but that's a in the, we have a professional society called the american academy of religion that's a real that professors from all around the world come to once a year. Uh, trips there as well, too. Um, Shocker. And, yeah, right. And they, and they have a black theology uh, section or unit, I should say. They have, you know, they have hundreds of units. But I was the co-chair of the black theology unit, which meant that I was responsible for putting together paper sessions 
at our professional society and making sure that they were delivered and coordinated and that kind of thing. And I did that for, oh, what was it? Three, four years? I can't even remember the term. You know, something like okay. that. Okay. So have you been, I'm just kind of curious again to see your perspective on this. Have you been seeing um, maybe a renewed or maybe a, a new interest in understanding black theology? Because again, in my circles, this is new to us, but my what's new to me might not be new to everyone else, obviously. But I don't know. It just, it just to me in the circles I'm in, there seems to be a renewed interest of, oh my goodness, didn't know this existed. It actually helps me make so much more sense of the world that I'm living in. And this theology has implications for addressing social concerns that many of us are frustrated that, you know, frankly, the white evangelical heritage that I grew up in really did not care about. Um, so have you seen a renewed interest in this or has it always been kind of stable for you as, as you've been teaching and doing this kind of work? Well, I think the Black Lives Matter protest um, made it more visible, mm. right? Because you had whites um, entering into this kind of Black-led movement and then that piqued a lot of their curiosity about what is this? And they probably may have heard of James Cone. Like when that happened, especially with um, George Floyd, mm. right? There are a lot of white clergy locally who wanted to say, look, I don't know what to do, right? right. Like, right. I don't know how to join. Like, I'm not necessarily a protester, um, but I'm sympathetic to what's happening. Um, I feel frustrated that I'm on the sidelines, but I don't know if it's the best thing for me to go out there. And then also what was happening too in terms of COVID, right? And some people were like, I have comorbidities, like how am I supposed to? So a lot of them were just looking for a way to be active and to show solidarity with what was happening on the ground. And meanwhile, and I think in some of them were introduced to James Cone through that lens, hmm. right? Because what I would tell them is that, you know, it's good to cheer when people like put down Confederate monuments, right? Because they are not best representative of our country. Right. But why don't you question that white Jesus in your church? You right. could do that. Right. 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 To me, the white Jesus had been more deadlier than even the Confederate monument, that imagery, yep. right? In terms of that. So, so that's where I think that black theology, the, the entry points, especially for a lot of uh, white Christians started to find it through that. I'm not sure if many black Christians did, you know, in terms of that, but I think a lot of white Christians started to really see it because it be, it was a onboarding or an entry point into the struggles of black people. Yeah, which I think is kind of a good segue in, into this, you know, um, this thing that, that not only am I a part of, but I'm also realizing more and more is that I haven't asked myself the same question of like, okay, how do I be in, you know, I read James Cone, I'm listening more. I'm like, okay, there's obviously problems. I'm seeing them clearer than ever. Um, what, what, what do I do? Right. Because I think that I've learned that, that at least the white evangelical man perspective is go into a space and take it over. Like, oh, I have new answers. <laughs> Just follow me. Right. I'm the new guru. Now I, I read two James Cone's books. So let me explain to you how this all works. Right. But how, how do people like myself, like how do we become better allies? Because honestly, like I am more and more convinced every day that, that what black liberation theology is trying to teach us is so important to making real change happen that needs to happen. And I'm, I think a lot of people, including myself, are more and more frustrated by, by the lack of action in this space by my own heritage because they label it the typical boogeyman, you know, the communist, the Marxist, the socialist, but they have no problem, you know, supporting people who stormed the Capitol. I mean, that that's a reality. Um, and it's, it's in my view, heresy and it's vile. And I, I feel like, okay, well, what, how do I... What can, how do I kill white Jesus? Frankly, I mean, I said that. I've said that from, you know, publicly. I'm like, white Jesus needs to die and never resurrect. So, how do I participate in doing that? Because I, I, I'm, I'm starting slowly, but I am starting to see how dire the situation really is, even in 2022. Yeah. Well, I tell people to start where they're at, right? Like, they mm. can, they're, they're, I think there's a lot of things people can do. Um, you know, you know, most of the time when that when that question came to me, it was because people didn't see protests as their primary mode of entry into it for some reason. Um, and and I was like, that's perfectly fine because not all churches are called to do the same thing, right? Like, yeah. you know, you might have a church where 
Um, the average age is 60 and above, right? If you're pastor of your church, that doesn't make sense for you to be a protest church, right? <laughs> right? right? But you can still participate. Uh, so that's why I think James Cole is more value is, is so valuable because he makes the idea of struggling against racial injustice not just a political thing, but it's a faith-based action, hmm. right? Hmm. That it's a part of the expression because what's going to happen is the politics is going to change on this issue. But if you see it as part of your faith, as a faith calling, right, to struggle against the fundamental form of evil in American history, mm. right, a kind of concrete material evil, then you then if you see it from that perspective, there's lots of things that you could do from trying to read prayers from African, like changing your liturgy, right, yeah. just trying to read prayers from African American people. Um, um, inviting, you know, black pastors and, you know, just small, small things like that. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be a grand type of revolutionary act. You could do small gestures um, to, to, to change your platform or to change your worship context or to change your church to be much more intentionally inclusive with anti-racist uh, curriculum. Yeah. Right. Why? Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Seems like everyone's in a hurry these days. At Popeye's, we make our chicken on grandma time. You think grandma rushes good cooking? You've got a second thing coming, and it's a made with love chicken sandwich. We marinate our chicken for 12 hours, hand batter and bread it, and serve it up as a slice of heaven sandwich. Because we were raised to believe that if you're gonna make something, make it right, and then put a pickle on it. We don't make sense, we make chicken. Love that chicken from Popeye's. Let me ask you this. So, you know, I'm looking again at your page. First year uh, of teaching looks like 2003. So you've been you've been teaching for a little bit now, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Have mm-hmm. Have you seen the conversation and the awareness getting better <laughs> from from white you know folks and white evangelicals, or are you seeing kind of the same cycle repeating itself? Like, if, for example, I just finished the book um, "The Bible Told Them So" by J. Russell Hawkins. Um, how Southern evangelicals fought to preserve white supremacy. It, it documents extremely well um, how even in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, white evangelicals were you know staunchly against uh, desegregation. And I'm reading it, I'm like, oh my goodness, some of the same arguments I, I'm still hearing now used in different ways for different kinds of people groups. Um, and also the idea of colorblindness comes from, from from this movement. So I'm like, dang it, we haven't really in that sense progressed like how I thought that we have. Um, what are some of your thoughts on that based on, on, how you, on, you know, on, on your teaching and, and what you've seen in, in the culture? Well, based on white evangelical voting patterns, it's far worse, right? Yeah. Like they are still with the stop the steal. They're still emoting over a lost, you know, to, to, know. to me, that type of like, that's what makes it dangerous. That not just a disagreement, that's a dangerous thing, right? Because it becomes this type of memory hole, right? Where, 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 where truth gets go down the memory hole, where it can't even be a, a legitimate conversation and a principled debate. Like you're, it, it, it's um, there's something deeper at work, right? To hold yes. out this, this certain form of idolatry, where even Jim Wallace says these people are white before they're evangelical, mm. right? Mm. They put their whiteness at that, or whiteness is the controlling category in which they interpret their evangelicalism, right? Because black and Latino evangelicals don't feel the same way on on mass, right? right. So the fact that white Catholics and white even matter of fact, if there wasn't, if this was an all white country, Trump would have won again, right? Because more white people voted for Trump and against Obama than than that. And, and the religious and the religious noun, right? Had, did it change it, right? right. Most of the, most of the places where we call the Bible Belt had the worst form of slavery and segregation, right? Right. And to be, you know, Frederick Douglass. When he wrote his autobiography, mentioned how 
secular slave masters were preferable to religious slave masters because Christian slave masters thought they were doing it in the name of God. Yeah. Right. So he yeah. said it was harder to even reason with them. Right. Right. So I, I think evangelicals is, is just is getting worse because it's, it's there's a too much of a confidence yeah. and too much of a sense of a, a being aggrieved because we because we're losing our country. Right? right. That type of thing. So I think the type of fear and this apocalyptic vision, right, that I'm fighting this for good and you're evil. Right. That type of framework, I think it's get, becoming more aggressive. Not uh, less. I, um, you know, have to agree. <laughs> I mean, and I grew up homeschooled in fundamentalist circles. I grew up on a steady diet of Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh. That was my world. I mean, I, my, my dad was a small, small business construction guy. I would go to work with him painting and it was talk radio all day. So I, I'm certainly not ignorant to that. And um, it has, in my view as well, the rhetoric has only gotten more intense. I think we really see a rise of fascist um, um, ideology and, and, and talking points. Uh, Jason Stanley's book, How Fascism Works, documents so many things that you're like, oh my gosh, that, that's exactly what I just saw. Um, and and frankly, I, I want to go back to something that you hit early on in the interview as you mentioned that 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 one of the differences uh, with like, you know, the different theologies, the black liberation theology, and maybe maybe we can just call it white theology for sake of this conversation, is that is that, you know, a lot of, of the reform types that I grew up in, right? Like the Paul Washers, the John MacArthur's, that's what I grew up listening to. Their perspective is that oh, this is God's absolute truth. But like you said, they fail to completely acknowledge that they are also interpreting through a specific lens. And that view, I think, is maybe one of the most damning pieces of the whole thing because so many white evangelicals are convinced that they are standing on the absolute inerrant truth of God's word, air quotes here, when in reality, like everyone, they're interpreting it through a specific lens, but the 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 um the poison in that worldview is that they don't see it. They don't see the water in the fishbowl, right? They're Absolutely. they're objective. That yeah. is dangerous. I mean, yeah. and we're seeing we're seeing where that leads us, frankly. It's it, it's it's terrifying. No, you're absolutely right. Like, well, fun fact for what you said, I actually went to grade school with uh, Jason Stanley. <laughs> you bet his book. That's well, so I love his book. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, he's, he's a big time professor at Yale now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're, you're right. And that's a, it's a difficult, I think most evangelicals probably, such as yourself, they see the contra, you know, they break from evangelicalism when they see the contradictions, right? Yeah. Like the contradictions become so untenable. But when you're in it, right, you're, you, you're, you're trying to resolve and always make excuses for those type of contradictions. But most people see the contradictions, right? They just, right. they just, they just, there's a certain type of mental posture they use to try to reconcile things that can't be reconciled. But in terms of their take on scripture, right, they, they, they think there's an understanding that almost God wrote the Bible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, Beam down from heaven to to our hands in English. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And I say, yeah, I say, you know, I, I, some of them, I, you know, some of my evangelical friends I tease. I said, you read the Bible like a Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Quran. That's mm. not the Bible. Mm. Right. The Bible, even if you look at the Jewish tradition, right? There's interpretation, I'm on interpretation, to interpretation. Totally. It's the Quran, they say it came from the Abel Gabriel, right? Mm. It was just kind of just, that's the miracle. The miracle of Christianity is Jesus. The miracle of Islam is the Quran, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's, so the faith is not in, in script, in the Bible, the faith is in Jesus Christ. Right. The, the, the scripture is a witness to Christ. Right. It's not Christ. Right. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So that's why there's so much in black theology. There's so much attention to who is Jesus Christ, mm. right? Trying to define that. And blackness is one way to talk about, but really that's a metaphor for talking about solidarity with the poor. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, we have a few minutes left. I want to hone in on this. I think it's so important for our cultural moment, right? Because 
Um, I think James Cone in again re- referencing Black Power Black theology, he mentions that 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 using terms white and black are not just referring to skin color. He mentions that you know a black person can have have a white heart and a white person can have a black heart, right? <laughs> yeah, can yeah, you kind yeah, of yeah. unpack what he's talking about there? Because I think that that this would make that this will fill in so many blanks for maybe those out there who are like all this talk about color and race. I, I don't understand. But break down how James Cone is using these terms in in in, in that book. Yeah, like blackness and whiteness are, are signifiers, which is a word that really ties to talks that they're proxies for other things, for how advantage, privilege circulates, right? Yeah. So what he's trying to do is use a parallel, an analogy, an analogy of faith, hmm. right? So trying to say that as the biblical, like let's say if we use the analogy of faith from just the Hebrew experience, the the that the idea of being enslaved in Roman in, in Egyptian empire and in Roman empire is same is is similar to being enslaved within American empire, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if you see the movement of God and the people that were enslaved within Egyptian empire and Roman empire, then why can't you see the movement of God with the people who were enslaved within American empire? Right. right? Right. That's a way to kind of contemporize the gospel. Right. To see it from there and to see the surprise from it. Right. Right. Because the gospel should unsettle, not comfort you. Right. It should be it's a community of the unexpected. Right. right? And if it doesn't have that shock, that danger. Right. Jesus didn't die of natural causes. He was assassinated, crucified. (laughs) Right. 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 Under state power. Right. And I'm saying that the way kind of middle class Americans really see him as if he was this like, it's a Santa classification of Jesus, where he's just this type of nice person who kissed babies. But if that was the case, why was he so hated? Why was he so turned against? And I'm saying that blackness is the best way in the context of North America to Mm. represent that, right? Because it's a persecuted, it's a crucified people, right? In this context. So that's where the metaphors are trying to get at. Yeah, and I think this is a great place to mention that this is a great um, um, way of, of seeing the difference here of how maybe white America views the American empire, especially in these Christian nationalist circles, right, where America is a special place uh, given to oh. us by God to save the world. And so any of any power it uses must be for good. When when black theology comes along with us, actually, um, as someone who in a people group who's been under the boot of the empire, let me tell you why I don't think that that this is accurate. But again, it's so it, it, the point is, is that, you know, oftentimes what I hear is, you know, from more of these like I, I call them Theo bros, you know, the, the more reformed types. Oh, <laughs> black liberation theology isn't the gospel. They 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 impart their own perspective on the text. I'm like, well, everyone does that. Like, that's what Christian nationalists do as well. They just have it from a totally different vantage point of no, America is God's next chosen nation. Right. And this ties into eschatology and all other kinds of stuff versus what it sounds like you're saying is that black theology is saying, no, no, no. Like we have to critique the empire because as we see in the scriptures, it's still happening today. Um, and, and that's why it's important to speak the truth to power that Jesus spoke truth to power to that ended up really costing his life. Very similar to MLK, right? I mean, we we now really whitewash MLK. Every MLK day, right? Every every white church I know have put some nice quote about being colorblind. It's like, man, if you just read like one, one full sermon by Martin Luther King, you would realize like there's a reason why someone killed him. He was not kissing babies and he wasn't Santa Claus, right? He was a radical that that our society spit out essentially. Right. And just to be clear, he never talked about colorblindness. That's something imposed. He talked about what people say content, their character, the color of their skin, that came from the dream speech. Mm. But what people miss is that that was at the end where he was flourishing. The actual prepared text, he talked about broken promises. Right. Mm. And he talked about the Negro has come here for a promise. And the promise has come back insufficient funds, right? He talked about the promises of blank blank check to insufficient funds. So really that speech could be called the broken promise speech, not the dream speech. The dream Mm. was at the end where he was actually spontaneously doing, going to that type of rhetorical gift that he had. But, you know, he was really trying to talk about the contradictions in American society and how those need to be solved. But but your larger point about, about, Interpreting Christian faith, it's a good point because 
what I didn't mention before explicitly is that liberation theology makes the case that Christianity has to be interpreted from below, mm. not from above, right? Mm. That if you look at all the communities that it was speaking to, it was speaking toward the peasant class, the, right. the people who have been aggrieved, right? So that if you're looking at American history, there are two different interpretations. There's a sunny side and the night side. The sunny side has this idea of America as a city on the hill, right? America as the land of promise. But the night side starts with America as not a democracy, but as a slaveocracy, mm. right? Mm. That America started in slavery, not democracy. And black folks been enslaved from 1619 for the birth of this country, the Emancipation Proclamation happened in 1865 or ratified, but it didn't go from slavery to freedom or from slavery to segregation. Right. Segregation wasn't ended formally until 1965. Right. So you have 346 years. So it, for those people who are still struggling with this, imagine the black community, think about this point, the mm. black community have been enslaved in America longer than they've been free. Mm. Right, 346 years versus 50 something years. We have this democracy and even that was with mass incarceration. So right. it's only right. been open to black folks participation for a human lifetime. Right, right. right. So think about, and the people that enslaved were Christian identified. <laughs> right. right. So right. think about trying to reinterpret Christianity in light of that experience. And that's what black theology is trying to struggle with the idea of coming from an enslavement experience by the very people who call themselves Christians with authority and right. trying to make meaning out of the gospel to you. Yeah. That's what black theology is about. No, I think that's that's really well put. Um, and I think a lot of people um, are realizing, I'll use myself as the example here, that I was taught American mythology, not American history. And mm -hmm. as I'm reading more and more American history, I'm like, Oh my God, like it is, this is way worse and way different than what I was taught. Um, I, I finished maybe last year, I read uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, Stand from the Beginning, you know, and I'm like, where was this book? <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. why was I never taught about, about all of this? And, you know, like I said, the Bible told them so and how, you know, and really, unfortunately, to my own shame, how, how Protestants and evangelicals have been at the center of so many of these theologies and perspectives that have kept people minority groups, specifically the black community, oppressed or enslaved for a long time and still do. They, they find new ways to be more subliminal that have the same outcome, right? Which is where we get the critical race theory and why that was developed, which is for a whole different discussion. So, you know, I mean, you know, Adam, I, I know that we can go into so many things, but I think our time is, is coming to a close here. I do want to point out, though, that you are doing um, a class uh, with uh, Trip Fuller right now called James Cone Was Right. Um, and I, I've, I've been... I, I watched the first one. I caught up on the second one. I had to uh, listen to the third one. It's been great to have you and Trip going back and forth and you unpacking so much of this. So um, where can people find you and, and, where, and where can they find that class? And let me ask you this. Will it be available after the class is done for you know purchase or something like that? Do you know if, if that's the case? Yeah, I believe so. Um, um, it's jamescohenwasright.com. Uh, you can either look under Homebrew Christianity Um but what that's also, also Upsetting the Powers. Upsetting the Powers is actually going to be a podcast series that I'm going to launch sometime in late February, right? That's, that's going exciting. to actually, and the first series is going to be on James Cone and Katie Cannon, who's a womanist theologian. Womanist theology is also crucially important that came, mm. you know, out of black theology and feminist theology. Um, so we're going to launch that as, a, as an ongoing podcast. We're going to have courses for people who may be interested um, and we're going to have, you know, uh, instructional educational videos that they're going to talk more about the black theological tradition, the women's theological tradition. Well, we will definitely promote that. That is key to the work that so many of us are doing in these spaces as we're trying to learn and just realize how how much the, how much we have to learn and how much decolonization has to go into our own theology, right? You can't just deconstruct your your theology without recognizing the colonization that was a part of it. It's so key to so much of this. In fact, every time I interview someone on any topic, it's like three degrees away from white supremacy. Honestly, like all roads lead back to some form of that. And it, it really, for me, is um, more and more... 
I don't know if humbling is the right word. It, it, it is just, um, it's, it is matrix inducing, right? Of like, what world was I living in that I didn't realize how much of this uh, in my, and what I benefited from was baked into the pie uh, from really from white supremacy intentionally. So uh, we'll make sure to put that, uh, that, that podcast in the show notes when this comes out and you know, I, where else can people find you? Do, you? do you do stuff on social media? Do you have an Instagram account, Twitter, anything like yeah, that? Yeah, all of that. Um, yeah. Gosh, I'm trying to think what I remember. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, Insta- I'm <laughs> okay. on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I actually cannot remember my account names. I think it's ADM Clark. I, I, you know what? I'm I'll guessing. find you. Don't worry. I'll, I will guessing. find you. <laughs> but I, I'm on there. I'm, I'm responsive and people like inbox me and have questions. I try to, I try to be uh, responsive to that. Sometimes I don't see it, but most of the time, I, you know, if you get my attention, I will respond. Fair enough. Well, Adam, I appreciate you making time to come on and talk about all this stuff. It was great having you. I'm sure we'll do something again in the future. Great. Thanks. Appreciate it.